0: Welcome to Startup Stories, where we go behind the scenes of some of the most interesting and innovative tech startups in the world. Each episode will bring you in-depth interviews with entrepreneurs and business leaders, sharing their personal stories on success, failure, and everything in between. So whether you're an entrepreneur yourself or someone that's just generally interested in the world of startups, then Startup Stories is the perfect place for you to gain insight and inspiration into some of the most exciting players in the game. So sit back, relax, and join us on a journey of Startup Stories. Hi, Casper. Hey, Jordan. Thanks for joining me on the Startup Stories podcast. Thanks for inviting. No problem at all. So of course, we're gonna have a lot of listeners that don't actually know who you are. So could you give a brief introduction into yourself?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, currently the co-founder of Polymer Protocol, so Polymec is a decentralized community driven fundraising platform for Web3. So, well, that's a very long title, but as such, you can say we help other startups in raising funds on, uh, via the blockchain. So we want to do it regulatory compliant, but also full transparent, which is what the, the power of blockchain is. And I guess one of the interesting thing is also how did I actually end up here? Because uh, talking sort of a bit about uh, yeah, startup stories and sort of how I end up in a, in, a, in a blockchain startup in Switzerland, like my initial background is from uh, auditing and accounting. So I started out uh, now many years ago in KPMD as an auditor and has been through various uh, corporates. I guess the biggest one that people might know would be Maersk, container shipping company, but have after that basically been in uh, in startups for the last what are we talking about like eight years or something now um so um yeah time flies and uh, definitely startups is, a, is sort of a different it's a different beast than what it is in corporate
0: yeah and that's why i want to get to understand you as the individual behind this startup so what i'd like to do is you know for a man that's accumulated over 20 plus years of experience in startups finance and compliance how do i understand you, Casper, take me back to your earliest memory from your childhood what was life like for you
1: ah earliest from my childhood well that's long that's <laughs> yeah. a very really long time ago so um it's one of these things of uh, basically being curious i think wanting to try out new things and well figuring out how things work and for me that's very much of actually some of the things that you probably bring from your upbringing in your childhood and into your adult life of if you maintain that curiosity of wanting to constantly learn new things and figuring out how things are working and how can you improve things is for me very much of the mindset of the the entrepreneur or the or or the startup founder of that basically you can't really help yourself because you see a problem and you figure out a way of like hey what can you actually do to uh, to address that problem or to change the status quo so i think that's for me, it's one of the things that I, if I look sort of from my upbringing of like, hey, how to actually maintain that and how to maintain that as a key value that drives you forward.
0: Where did that curiosity come from, Casper?
1: Good question. I think it's like for, I think it's basically being exposed to to different mindsets and to uh, to different uh, ideas. I think one one of the things remembering from childhood is probably also on what your parents actually are exposing you for, what your family is exposing you for when it comes to just expanding your scope and your world of, uh, I think some of the memories I have, like some of the memories I have from my, from, from my childhood is very much also on like going to vacations where you are sort of, or not even just vacations, but also getting exposed to like, uh, to arts, culture, different environments, different people. And sort of uh, not being afraid of what what is new and different, but basically trying to get an appreciation for the fact that uh, that everybody is different and that, uh, that there are various different ways of seeing the world and being open to that.
0: If you can still remember, if you could take me back to perhaps when you're an early teenager or sort of in that teenager range, how would you have described yourself back then?
1: I think probably not extremely sort of outgoing, but more determined and sort of having an an idea of where i want to go and i think one of the things that sort of changed over sort of teenage years and so on is more of how do you get more assertive in who you are and where you want to go and how do you sort of articulate that in decisions that you take and i think that's definitely uh, i think one, one of the things i can remember was like decision of going to to high school was very much sort of, of like, ah, is this the right thing? Should you go to high school? Should it be more of uh, like a technical education? What sort of fits? And I think that's one of the memories I still have of being, of at that point, getting quite assertive with both uh, parents, but also like uh, teachers and so on of like, hey, this is what I want to do, even if you think for other reasons that this is the wrong way then I think this is the right path for me and sort of being assertive in that way and and trying to shape your own destiny rather than to uh, to just go with the flow but basically saying I have an opinion about what I want to do and and what can I actually do to make that happen what are the things you can do to push yourself forward and get you in the position that you want to uh, want
0: to be in so let's talk about your educational background you chose to study in business and business economics Why did you choose to go down that path?
1: I originally actually uh, applied to become an architect. Okay. And that didn't happen. (laughs) Then uh, business sort of became the second option, actually after taking a year off of just to work and, and, well, basically just have a cutoff from studying, ended up in, uh, in, in, in business school and figuring out what are the opportunities actually there. I think one of the good learnings from that was very much of being at a very small university. I'm originally from Denmark and... The university where I did my, my bachelor's, were it was basically a branch of a larger university. And I think there was a total of probably 100 or 120 students or something. So a quite small environment. But that also gives you different opportunities. than when you have a large university with tens of thousands of students, you can't actually get as close to professors and, uh, and educators as you can in a much smaller environment. And it's much easier to actually get involved. and be a part of uh, of changing things so uh, so being a part of the um, student board uh, how to make sure that there's also social events going on student bars and all these kinds of things of this is all something that's actually driven out by the students themselves and i think you need to get involved to make things happen and i think that that was very much a good learning from actually being in a small place because there's a lot more direct impact on what you do to anything happening if you have tens of thousands of students you can just go with the flow and then you you can still be a part of a great uh, community but when you're in a smaller community you need to involve yourself a bit more to make sure that you can actually that uh, you can actually deliver and that uh, that things are actually going in the direction that you want to
0: yeah i have to totally agree with that it's much more intimate to have a smaller group you can learn faster and i can't remember where i heard this but they were saying, talking from a business point of view, the bigger a company gets, the colder the culture gets because it's harder to keep the same sort of vibe, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. It's what actually for me is very interesting with startups is this notion as long as you have a team that can sit around a table and maybe a big table. So let's say it's like a, that startups up to a roughly 20 people. It's a lot of a different animal than when you start going above 20 to maybe... 100 or 200 that's a different thing and then when you go past the 100 200 mark then it becomes much less much less personal and much more of a process and a process-based business that is very much of once you are in a much smaller group and working together on things it's much more personal and it's much more intimate and naturally when things get broader it just gets less personal and much more of process and there's a lot it's a lot easier for everybody to basically just ending up going with the flow and becoming a bit more of an alienating culture, or at least it's something that you really need to be careful about when scaling your startups of if you value that intimate culture that you had when you were two, three, four, five, six persons in the beginning, and now you grow to, uh, let's say, if you were were 200, how do you keep the good parts of that culture, and how do you anchor those ones in a large organization? I think that's really where you see a lot of startups are all of a sudden changing culture as they become bigger. And you you actually also see a lot of changeover in the people that are involved in startups, which I think actually is a natural progression. Because... There are a lot of entrepreneurs that really like the small teams and the thing that you have a lot of impact directly. And then when it becomes a much bigger venture with a lot more process, then it becomes natural that you need other people with potentially different capabilities to deliver in that
0: uh, in that case. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a bit of a catch-22 situation. You, of course, most businesses want to scale, they want to grow, but at the same time, you don't want to lose that personal yeah. touch. I think you know when you start to lose that personal touch or things start to change when you can no longer remember everybody by their first name. I think that's the, one of the first yeah. indicators that your business is getting quite big, which is natural. And I guess there's only the only way to sort of solve that is to have, you know, managers in departments to make sure they know their team very well. Because, you know, ultimately people work for a manager, not for a company. And that's what keeps people in a business long term yeah. that I've noticed. Okay, so... Talk to me about your path that led you to become a co-founder of Polymech Protocol.
1: So I guess, well, it all goes back to actually starting out as an as, a, as an auditor, because I was in that part, ended up becoming very focused on compliance, on regulatory compliance, both as an auditor, but then also branched out to um, to doing internal audit in quite large corporations. Uh, I was uh, two and a half years in uh, Nortel Networks, that's now, it went bankrupt and um, at the time I joined, they were on the investigation by the SEC, I think for um, well, it was an inaccurate filing of their uh, of their accounts. So not not a sort of very disruptive environment of trying to figure out what actually happened in this uh, in this huge company that at the time was I think thirty two thousand employees or something. But a very interesting path to actually get much more into the whole regulatory side of a, of a business and the compliance side of business of of the fact that compliance can end up being, it can be a make or break part of your, of your business if you don't pay attention to it. But if you have it as a part of the ground thinking up from your business, then you can incorporate it in what you're doing and making sure that actually, now going back a bit to the culture talk of that this is actually part of your culture, that you actually have a culture that promotes that compliance. And then after that went the, um, Went in other, uh, like, larger Danish companies, one called uh, Christian Hansen, doing food ingredients. I was leading up the internal uh, audit department at that uh, that company that was private equity-owned, and that was through an IPO. So very interesting times of actually building up... Uh, yeah, processes and procedures to make sure that the company is actually ready for an IPO. And then subsequent to that went to Merck, the Danish shipping uh, giant, mainly doing, uh, I think, right, right today, there's mainly container shipping, but at that time, also a lot of oil exploration and oil services as well. And that was sort of where sort of a lot of the my sort of entrepreneurial starts happened there, because Mersk is a huge company with hundreds of of employees, but The part I was in was uh, we were buying and selling fuel oil for the ships in in the group. So basically, it was commodities trading. And we were a small team of, I think, 40 people when I started of trying to figure out how do you optimize these things for this huge organization, but had a lot of autonomy of basically being a startup within a corporation. Because... Commodities trading is something that is, it's, like, it's just extremely fast, and the time to decision is uh, is really really short. So it's something that usually doesn't work well with huge corporates with long de- long paths to, to decisions. So the setup was much more entrepreneurial, and uh, you could end up trying out a lot of things on uh, that setup of uh, of a smaller group. So that was had a very sort of entrepreneurial mindset in that uh, at the time, and also. Uh, figuring out like how do you actually build the business case how do you implement it? how do you convince others that this is actually something that's worth going for and that ended up in me after most called trading did my first startup which was a gdpr compliance software as a service platform which were really interesting to build learned a lot used two years on it and then we ended up selling the basic software afterwards because we never really managed to get the proper pro- product market fit for what we were doing at the time, it was doing a software as a service solution to smaller companies for doing GDPR, basically being able to do their privacy policies and uh, and procedures around uh, around compliance with uh, with GDPR. But at the time, I think and maybe even that's still the case today that you have larger companies that are very afraid of. GDPR and privacy data, and then you have other companies that are sort of like, ah, oh, yeah, it's okay. And <laughs> so you end up with coming up with a solution of like, hey, you can do it fairly easy and fairly cost effective. But if the customers on the other side is sort of either they're so afraid that they don't care about paying 100K to a lawyer to fix it, or you have other ones that are like, I don't want to pay you $10 because I don't think it's a problem. Then it's difficult to sell the solution that falls square in between these two uh, two sort of uh, endpoints. So a very valuable learning, but also I think we ended up with a good product, but the product market fit never never really ended up uh, being there. After that, I ended up in Switzerland. Was looking for actually commodity trading jobs because this was what I knew from before. But then there was this opportunity with a company called Web3 Foundation about supporting the next generation of the internet, Web3, and making sure that you have a free and open and transparent uh, internet for everybody. And that was sort of my venture into uh, to, to blockchain at that point. So they were looking for a CFO and I thought like, hey, this sounds really interesting. It's a, it's a startup, it's a blockchain, so it's not, so fine, it has some. It, it would have something to do with capital markets, but also something to do with the, with the privacy side of actually coming up with technological solutions that can solve some of the things i worked with before. So I ended up getting the job at uh, Web3 Foundation. And uh, one of the things that Web3 Foundation is doing was, uh, was issuing both the Kusama and the Polkadot blockchains, which I think Polkadot today is on the top 10 of the, of the largest blockchains uh, out there. So very interesting time and getting deep into something that's very deep tech, and something that's also very entrepreneurial and something that's quite disruptive in, in what you can do. Uh, and that led me then to, to Polymech of actually building on top of the Polkadot technology to reap some of the benefits of what uh, uh, what I was a part of for the past four years and, uh, and see, hey, how can we, uh, how can we actually make uh, fundraising much more efficient for startups?
0: So to make sure I understood you right on the last part, the Polymech idea, did it come off the back of Web3 Foundation?
1: Yeah, I think it was some. It, it was some of the things that um, you can say. It's not as such related to Web3 Foundation, but what Web3 Foundation managed to do with Polkadot is Polkadot is, as such, you can say it's infrastructure to build other projects on top. So Polkadot in itself is an interoperability, shared security layer for anyone else that wants to build their solutions on top of the Polkadot blockchain. So. What you then have on, on Polkadot is you have a lot of different companies actually are building their own unique use cases on top of that infrastructure. So it's a bit like um, it's a bit like I think we used before of like that Polkadot could be sort of like the subway in, in a city, which is uh, is really really useful if you have a lot of companies building or buildings on top where you have people living in old the buildings, then the subway is really really useful. But to make it very interesting and, and interconnected, you need the subway to make sure you can move people around. So that is sort of the same way of looking at, uh, at what Polkadot can do for a lot of other startups that are building uh, blockchains on top of Polkadot, is making sure that all these different blockchains can actually talk together. And this is what we are then leveraging with what we're doing on Polymic of, of saying that you can talk to a lot of other different blockchains, making sure that you can do fundraising completely transparent, because it's, it's blockchain, so everything is uh, accessible for, for anyone. But with utilizing other blockchains on the Polkadot uh, ecosystem, we can also make sure that there is a performance of, uh, of KYC being uh, compliant with fundraising rules and, and the like.
0: So it's one thing having a good idea, which we all have. And then there's another thing actually turning your idea into a reality. So what was it about this idea with polymet that made you think you know what let's make this happen let's do this for real i
1: think one of the things we're actually sort of like now now we talked a bit about my background of sort of in in compliance and finance and blockchain is something that i think at least in the general public is is seen as sort of being very deep tech and very sort of uh, ah, but you need to be a coder to be able to understand it and mm-hmm. i would tend to agree that a lot of the Use cases currently on blockchain is very, well, you need to be able to at least be curious enough to try to understand the code and how coding works. I think blockchain is now at an impasse of where you can actually start to do real world use cases where you have much more mass adoption because you have the direct access to the user. So you don't need to be a coder to be able to use it. And for me with Polymake, was a lot of discussions back and forth with my uh, my, my co-founders of How can we build it? How can we build the use case around it? What are the incentives that we need to have on the blockchain to do it? And one of the interesting things is a lot of what we are building is a lot more, it's a lot more, you can say, financial compliance and game theory based than it's necessarily coding based. So a lot of blockchain is, I wouldn't call it common sense, but a lot of it is incentive structures making sure that you have the right incentives for people to take the right decisions through the protocol. What you can say is, well, as such, you can say blockchain is making sure that you can have a fully decentralized system, but you need to make sure you have the right incentives for people to work together as a community. Because it's since it's fully transparent, if there are inefficiencies somewhere, then you have people that potentially would use it because it's fully open. And anyone that can exploit it somewhere for... Uh, for, for gain over others would, would do it. So in the essence of designing blockchain is much more of making sure that how do you actually have the right design of your of your process and the incentive to make sure that it's actually something that provides value to all the users of the, of the chain. So I saw that as being talking about something that's very, that, that in the compliance space and in, in the fundraising space is much more about Thinking about what should, how the product should look, rather than being able to, to code it. Of course, you need to have uh, you need to make sure that you have someone as well that can code it. But for me, it was like, hey, this is something that not necessarily is extremely deep, like something that coders need to use three years and trying to figure out how to how to build. But utilizing the power of the underlying blockchain and and, uh, and the deep tech that has been built on Polkadot to actually put a business use case on top of it. So for me, that was like, hey, this is something that I understand, something that I'm passionate about. And uh, this is the opportunity to actually create something that is missing in, in the space today.
0: Yeah, it does look very interesting, I must say. And what I wanted to ask, I know that it's you know, only three four months into Polymech. Is that right?
1: Well, yeah, well, you can say officially, yes. But we've been working it, with yes. it for <laughs> a year and a half or something uh, in, in some way or form, yeah.
0: Okay, gotcha. Well, so you have that. And of course, you have 20 years plus years on, a, on your resume with some large corporations as well. From what you've seen and taken it into polymic, I guess, what would you say is the one most essential key ingredient for a successful business?
1: I'll go back to a bit what we talked about in the beginning of curiosity. Because if you're not curious, you will just go with the flow. And I think you need to have the curiosity to wanting to understand how... Well, this sounds very uh, philosophical for wanting to understand how the world works, <laughs> and wanting to figure out how can you actually improve that, like how can you make things easier for users of the of the product that you're building, and that's not only in the beginning, but I think that's that's the constant thing that has to drive you forward is curiosity how to improve, how to make better products and how to make a difference for your users. That for me is really keen, but also what what is really important and why I'm very interested in the the blockchain space is that I think we are seeing the change of business models from these like very big global conglomerates of like uh, Facebook, uh, Google and so on to something that's much more community driven and it really changes the way that you think about a business model because a business model is uh, in to have a successful decentralized blockchain protocol is much more about making sure that people actually want to use your product and that you have the right incentives for people to use the product but also to make sure that then you are sharing the benefit with your community so Today, a lot of the business setup is like, hey, you need to make money so you can pay your shareholders. But if I'm looking at, at blockchain, it's much more of like if a big community comes together, then they create value together. And that value, you can make sure that the value is actually in the hands of the community and not in the hands of shareholders of the company. But it's all the users that actually gets the direct benefit of the fact that they use uh, are using the, uh, the blockchain protocols. So I think it's it's very much of giving that power back to the community of users rather than giving a, a lot of like profits that goes to shareholders. So for that, I think it's sort of, it's really interesting to see how all of a sudden the focus changes a bit from doing something that can create quick profits to something that actually creates a big community that actually wants to use the the product on a, on a long-term basis.
0: I like what you, when you was talking about how to create a great product the curiosity side of things and stuff like that the thing that stood out for me was when you said about creating making it easier for the user and i i completely agree with that i was literally thinking when i perhaps look at two similar products that do the same thing in terms of the end result But if one is just so much more easier to use, I don't care how good the other one is, I'm gonna use the easier tool because you want to make someone else's life easier through that product, which I thought was a game changing point that you made. So I wanted to highlight that for the listener. Great, great point.
1: It's interesting thing to talk about that for blockchains because I think blockchains is always like, ah, but it's difficult and I don't know how to do it and, and, and so on. I think that part is also changing for the blockchain industry because everybody understands that You want to use a great product but it needs to be easy to use so the accessibility is definitely something that's that's really key there and that's one of the things that we're also very passionate about with with polymake of making sure that you want to use a product or you want to build the product that people want to use you don't want to build a product just because it's a great product but also because it's something that your users like to use and they want to use it over and over again
0: absolutely so how many people are polymech now is it 10 so current yeah
1: currently we are 10 people A good mix of um, people with financial background, people with with developer background and yeah, coming together and making sure that you have the right uh, different uh, capabilities to deliver everything uh, that's necessary to get the product off the ground.
0: So how far do you want to take Polymech? How how big do you want to grow, let's say, in the next 12 to 24 months? So
1: I think when we're looking at in terms of people, well, maybe going to, I don't know, 15, 20 or something like that. But for, for me, and that's, that's actually one of the things you can do with, uh, with blockchain is that you don't necessarily have to have a huge organization to support the product that you're building. No. Because the scalability that you have by using blockchain technology is just there. So you can make a mass market global product from day one. The thing is, it's a challenge because it always takes a long time to get off the ground because you need to make sure that you have something that actually works from day one and that is available open source. Transparent on chain, so it's difficult to sort of to do a lot of tinkering because that's the usual sort of uh, or the traditional way of of doing startups. is very much of like, hey, yeah, you try different things and, and then you uh, then you're figuring out what works and then you get your product market fit that way. In the blockchain world, is slightly different because it just takes a long time to actually build something you can push out to the market. Just because in a in a decentralized trustless infrastructure where you don't have control over what happens so if you do coding mistakes or something in your product someone will exploit those mistakes you really need to be quite careful in 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 what you're building and that just requires you to be very much outgoing and talking to your customers up front to understand what are their requirements what are the things that they would like what are the things that they need and what are the things that they actually want to pay for for using so there's a lot more iterations beforehand with partners, potential customers on figuring out how how to build. And then unfortunately, it takes quite a long time to get off the ground. But then once you're off the ground, then you have the full scalability and you can scale a global product with a very, very small team.
0: Yeah, that's true. I'd say quality over quantity, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think I speak for many businesses, you know, hiring the right or wrong people can be make or break for a company because ultimately the business is the people right Yeah. and from where you are now or in general when you've been hiring or plan to hire what do you say would you say is generally your toughest challenge when it comes to finding the right people for polymech
1: well it's getting easier now because uh, prices for tokens are not what they have been so uh, <laughs> a lot of other blockchains are are not necessarily hiring as much as they did before but definitely getting uh, getting the right developers with the right passion to do things is really key and can be extremely difficult. There are so many different uh, coding languages out there, especially when you look at uh, at, at blockchain. There is actually not that many uh, that many candidates that have experience in that part. So, getting the right developers actually both for the uh, for the blockchain part, but also of getting developers that can bridge that gap between your front end and your user facing side, so the UI UX part and the blockchain so that you actually can because your front-end and your ui ux is this is what your customers are going to see of course there might be someone that also sees the backend uh, blockchain code and are interacting with it directly but probably 95 percent of your users are going through, through go, going through your front-end app so that goes back to what you're saying of like how do you actually build a great product with great usability that people want to use not just saying i have the best tech but i also have the best user interface that people want uh, that people really want to use and i don't see actually there is that many that are candidates that are basically covering that uh, bridge, bridging that part because you really want to make sure that the ones that are doing your front end uh, and your app is really understands blockchain as well because otherwise you get it uh, get it disconnected so really making sure that you have a as a development team is really important, but then also when it comes to the business development part of how do you make sure you are onboarding the right uh, the right customers, how do you understand your go-to-market strategy, how do you actually build that up? That is almost equally important, depending on the product, of course, that you're building, but you need users. There's a lot of uh, this idea, especially in, the, in blockchain, of like, hey, if we build it, then people will come and use it to a certain degree. They might, and especially if everybody, if markets are going up and everybody thinks they can earn a lot of money, then people are going to use something where they think they can earn a lot of money. But for me, that's not necessarily that's not the interesting use case. I think for me, the interesting use case is you want to use blockchain for what it can really do of settling trustlessly between parties that doesn't necessarily understand each other. That's why I think a lot of the financial uh, models are are good for for blockchain because it's. Everybody can understand. If I'm paying something to you through my bank, then I do that because I don't. The bank is in between, and I trust the bank to actually transfer the money over to over to you. If I do it directly on chain, then I can transfer tokens directly between the two of us without having the bank as a trust layer in between. So that use case for blockchain is really uh, is more or less already established. But when you look at other business cases for where you have intermediaries. That is sort of where blockchain technology really come in and actually make a difference. And that's where you need the right business developers, the right curious founders that actually want to disrupt those business models and see where blockchain really can provide value. And I think for me, that's where you can actually take out these trust-based businesses because you can do things trustlessly and decentralized on blockchain.
0: What drives you to pursue what you're doing with Polymech? I guess
1: in the end, I've been thinking about it for the last uh, couple of months and so on. I think it's sort of like changing sort of some of the beliefs in how you actually are doing business and what actually provides value. Because coming from a lot of big corporates and and, and also corporates that are listed on stock exchange, a lot of it is sort of profit driven of how do you make sure you can actually create profits for the next quarterly reports or something like that. Where really what I see in blockchain is that, now you can actually change that narrative to create value for your users and the users will automatically get part of that value if you have the right incentives. And anyone can be an owner of these of uh, of these uh, of these chains and, and that you are then both an owner and a user at the same time. So it's not like you're just a user and then someone else earns money on the fact that you use a product, but you're both a user, but you also reap the benefits of the fact that the network effects on a business creates value for the business. So this whole change to something that's much more community owned and that Web3 inherently gives you access to own your own data and interact as an individual rather than you have to interact through these large global conglomerate that we see today. For me that is really sort of like something that i think empowers the individual much much more and something that i think will definitely disrupt the business going forward and that that's where i think that web3 and blockchain actually would come in and play a major role in how we actually see business and, and growth being driven going forward absolutely how
0: far do you want to take things with Polymet?
1: well as far as uh, as far as we can go i think now we're talking fundraising and doing it regulatory compliant and we have um, kyc and so on on chain but you can say the technology has a lot more use cases underneath the same umbrella. So fundraising, definitely, that's that's sort of the first path we are we are going for. But uh, but definitely have other ideas to how to utilize the same narrative of taking away the middleman, making markets much more transparent and accessible for anyone, but still making sure that you do something that's that's compliant. That protects the uh, the users as well, and that you really have something that uh, that is a long term infrastructure for regulatory compliant uh, DeFi in the uh, in the blockchain space.
0: Amazing! Looking forward to you know watching Polymex's journey and seeing how far you guys really do take it. Now, there's obviously going to be a lot of people listening. You've got, as I say, 20 plus years of experience in the game. What one bit of advice would you give to the listener if you could? I think. Going back to some
1: of the things we talked about, I think it's it's definitely staying curious, challenge the status quo, and figure out what, if you see inefficiencies, then what are you going to do about it? Like, uh, I think uh, so today there's, there's a lot of like, ah, there's a lot of chatter on social media and so on, and people are like, ah, oh, yeah, but uh, yeah, this is not uh, nice, and this is not nice. And everybody talks about uh, things that they don't like or things they want to change. But I think it's sort of like a, uh, being curious and standing up there and, and actually do something with it and actually be that change maker for pushing things forward. Because uh, talking doesn't necessarily take you too far, but starting to build a startup and uh, and uh, build products that, that people want to use that actually are solving real pain points is really something that we need. And uh, I would hope that we see more people that are willing to take that chance and go out and actually. Build something they believe in, rather than just staying a bit on the safe side. And then it's like, yeah, I have I have a good job, and it has a good income, and this is fine and uh, and, and and sustainable. But uh, sometimes also be a bit curious, go out there and, and take a bit of risk, and see what you can drive in it. And then yeah, believe in that yourself can be that change maker that can actually build something that makes a difference for
0: a lot of people. Casper, I have to say I 100% agree. I think it's curiosity which leads to great ideas and ideas to explore new avenues. So curiosity is definitely the key message of this podcast. I want to thank you for joining me on the Startup Stories podcast. I look forward to, as I say, following your journey and see how Polly get along. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. It was uh, very nice. No worries. Take care, my friend. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Startup Stories. I hope you enjoyed hearing from our guests and learning more about their journey in the startup world. I'll be back soon with another exciting episode featuring a new guest. So make sure to subscribe to Startup Stories so you never miss an episode. Also, don't forget to follow me on social media for updates and additional content. And if you have any suggestions for guests or topics you'd like to hear about, please reach out to me. And as always, I appreciate your support and feedback.